Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our new series, Making the Most of Your Salvation, with a message entitled, Knowing Your Imputation. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are few Christian doctrines that are so passionately defended and so vehemently attacked as the doctrine of imputation. That's because this doctrine stands at the very heart of the greatest of all questions. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that God accepts me? How can I know that I'm going to go to heaven? How can I be assured of my eternity? Now, I've started a series on knowing your salvation, and I have said just like our computers and our smartphones, a great many of us don't know all that they can do for us and all the benefit that we might have. And so also many Christians are not aware of all the benefits of their salvation. So today is a part of making the most of your salvation series. We're talking about knowing your imputation. Now let's be clear. Even though the doctrine of imputation is the kind of things that theologians talk about, it's not a debate for theologians alone. If you get this question wrong, you're eternally ruined. So again, let's be very clear. Everyone tries to answer the question of hope after death. I mean, even the atheist does. You know, for the atheist, their hope is that nothing happens at death. No judgment, no accountability, no God who will weigh and measure every aspect of his or her life. He or she better be right, for if if he or she is not right, it's a monstrous miscalculation. But for most people, almost everyone says, well, if there is a God, I do my best. That's all anyone can ask. But again, we need to ask a question here. Are you sure you've done your best? And are you sure that your best is all that anyone can ask? Are you willing to bet billions of years of eternity on that single phrase? And amazingly, many people do so without any way of testing whether or not that's true. See, Christians bet eternity on the good news that Jesus died for our sins. And if you're a Christian, you might say, well, that's old news. I already know all of that. But I want to ask, do you understand the meaning of the statement? I'm speaking here about the doctrine of imputation. And by the time I'm finished today, some of you are going to say, well, yeah, that is the gospel. And some of you are going to say, actually, that's the most shocking thing I've ever heard. But all of us will understand why the doctrine of imputation is the most passionately defended and most vehemently attacked doctrine there is today. I'm reading 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read that a second time. Let's make sure we've heard it. He, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And before I go further, I want us to understand who gets into heaven. Only the person who is or who embodies the righteousness of God. So however else you understand that phrase, the righteousness of God, please understand that at the very basic, it means at least three things. Number one, it means that God does what is right. Without any exception ever, God is never morally compromised. You can't make a special deal with him. God is motivated by his righteousness. Second, it means that God has established what is right for humanity by giving us his law. And third, it means that God also judges and condemns every act that is wrong or unjust or imperfect. 
And this then makes the last phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.21 an important phrase. Those who display the perfect righteousness of God are accepted by God, and that and only that is the guarantee of eternal life. So you might say, well, I'm not capable of that. But your capability has absolutely nothing to do with your acceptance into heaven. Let's give an example. In order to get into the Olympics, you need to be a top athlete in your country. You might say, well, I'm not capable of that. But your capability is not the issue. It's your performance that is the issue. So it is with heaven. Perfect righteousness is what is required. Let me give an example that would work from the book of Philemon. There, Paul is writing Philemon, and he's telling him to forgive his slave Onesimus. And with that, he offers this phrase. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. That's in verse 18. In older English Bibles, that word to charge is the word to impute. It comes from a Greek word which refers to accounting. To impute or to reckon or to charge, or as other Bibles put it, to consider, means to keep a record of commercial accounts, like in a business in which in books or in your computer, you're keeping record of every transaction you're making. It involves debits and credits. In other words, you keep a record of everything you owe someone else and everything someone owes you. So if you're a student, you know that the university is probably keeping a record of how much you owe them. If you work for a company, chances are you have a record of the amount of hours that your company owes you in your next paycheck. That's the word impute. Certain sums of money are either credited or they are debited to you. They are reckoned to you. They are charged to your account waiting to be paid. They are imputed to you. Now, according to the Bible, there are three things that are charged or imputed or reckoned to your account. First, you are reckoned a sinner by nature in Adam. Let me read to you from Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15, for if many died through the one man's trespass, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Then verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I hope you see this. Another word for made in verse 19 is the word ordained. God announced, God made, God ordained, God anointed, or gave every person the office of sinner in Adam. Adam's sin, his first act of sin, is imputed, or it's reckoned to your account. Before you did anything, good or bad, already at conception, as David says in Psalm 51, you were already reckoned or counted a sinner in Adam. God charged Adam's sin against you. I told you it would make people mad. Now, here's the first response. They say, it's not fair. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on a football team and there are 30 seconds left on the clock and your team is ahead. The other team has the ball on your 10-yard line. Now, that's the bad news, but here's the good news. It's fourth down and they got to make it to the goal line. You know, if you can hold the other team for this one down, you win the game. 
See, the ball snapped, and it's an amazing effort. You run through the blockers, and you tackle the quarterback. It's a five-yard loss. You've just won the game, and your teammates are flooding onto the field. They're congratulating you, but then everybody's heart just sinks. A flag has been thrown onto the field. One of your teammates was offside. You're given a five-yard penalty. The opposition now has another chance, and you lose the game. Now, you're going to say, it's just unfair. I, I didn't jump offside. Someone else did. Why should our whole team be penalized because of one man's sin? Let him take the five-yard penalty. Let him stand five yards back. Why should we? And the referee will answer, well, you guys all wear the same team sweater. You're all in solidarity with each other. And one man's sin is reckoned against the whole team, even on those who are standing on the sidelines right now. Now, that's how you started life, wearing the team jersey of humanity, the team jersey of Adam, with a penalty assessed against you from God, and that penalty is death. You were born into sin and death, and ever since, you've also willfully committed sins and added more sins to the ledger. Your debit column has grown massively. You're a sinner, but your greatest problem is not that you sin, and that's a huge problem. Your greatest problem is that you're in Adam and that his sin is reckoned or it's imputed to you. This goes to the heart of the issue of whether human beings are first and foremost good or whether they are first and foremost sinners. You know, back in history, back in the 300s, there was a theologian. His name was Pelagius, and he argued that humans were born good, but they sinned through the bad example of Adam. And interestingly enough, every single branch of Christianity has condemned Pelagius as a heretic. Why? Because he plainly contradicted the testimony of Scripture, Romans 5, Psalm 51, and many other passages. But he was also condemned because he mocked the gospel and he did away with the need for the cross. See, the Bible teaches us that our problem is not that we sin on occasion, but that we are in sin, that our entire existence is sin, and therefore we stand condemned before a righteous God. We are fully condemned. We are unable to go to heaven. That's our problem. That's the doctrine of imputation. Adam's sin is imputed to us. Ah, but there's so much more to say. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be at the center of all you do, guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. Every resource Back to the Bible Canada creates and shares with you will continue to offer Bible teaching you can trust to support your walk with God. This month, we want to send you for free during the month of February, Dr. Newfeld's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Based on his powerful teaching series of the same name, the truths you'll learn as you walk through New Testament teachings on the benefit of your salvation will be transformational. Help us to continue bringing excellent Bible teaching to anyone seeking truth and transformation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. Let's go back to the first part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that is the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This now brings us to the second issue of the doctrine of imputation. Our sin was reckoned or imputed to the sinless Christ. 
Romans 5 calls Christ the second Adam, the one who also represents the human race. So let's read our text in context, and I'm reading 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, do you notice that word, counting? Yeah, that's our word to reckon or to impute. God found a way in Christ not to credit our sins to our account, but according to verse 21, rather to credit them to Christ's account. Look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, that's why Christ is called our sin substitute. He became sin for us. In other words, the story of the cross from one vantage point is God's open declaration of what he thinks of sin. Jesus was spat upon, mocked, and held to public ridicule beaten and whipped so that his back was nothing but a mangled piece of meat. A crown of thorns was jammed onto his head, piercing through his skull, and then nailed hands and feet, spread eagle to a cross, then lifted up and dropped into a hole so that his shoulder sockets would pop out of joint, and he was left for hours dangling there. Every breath caused excruciating pain, and there he hung until he died. And that, says the Father, is exactly what sin deserves. It's the perfect punishment for sin, taking the sinless Christ and treating him with such barbarity. That accurately reflects perfect righteousness, a righteousness from God. And just so we're clear, it should have been us, yes? 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the story of the cross, and it's what you must see. But as vivid as that picture is, when we tell of Christ taking our sins, we have as of yet only told half of the story. The problem is many of us have lived only half of the story. See, from our perspective, the cross of Jesus forgives our sins. It takes us right back to square one as if we'd never sinned. It's true, but it's not the whole truth. And here's why. Did you notice after you gave your life to Christ and you were told how Christ forgave you all your sins that you also soon found that then you sinned again and you wondered, well, do I need to go back to the cross and to be forgiven again all over again? And then as you get closer to God, you begin to recognize that you're far more sinful than you had ever believed and you saw things that you never knew were sin before, but now you're feeling overwhelmed. Let's look at our text again. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, it is one thing to say that our sin is removed, and it's another to say we've become the righteousness of God. Or listen to Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. So what does that teach? It teaches the third important truth of imputation. Christ's sinlessness has been reckoned to us who believe. How did Christ live? Listen to the testimony of two people who watched him. 
1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then from John in 1 John 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, I want you to think about all the times you're tempted to sin and how often you didn't stand the temptation, you fell into the sin. At the same time, I want you to imagine the temptations of Jesus. And I know we're told of the three temptations when he was fasting in the wilderness. But as he grew, there were the regular boyhood temptations to disobey his parents. When he reached puberty and beyond, the temptation to lust. When he reached manhood, the temptation to abuse his power. And never for one moment does he fall into sin. He resists every single temptation at every single point in time throughout a total lifetime. And here's the sobering truth. Compare your record to his. Pretty, pretty sad, would you say? And here now is the breathtaking truth. His perfect record is imputed to you. It's charged to your account so that on the final day, you're going to stand before God and you'll be judged, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of Christ's sinless life. And that's the great exchange. He got my sin with its full punishment, and I got his righteousness with its full reward. And so what shall we say to these things? Well, first we should say that God is satisfied and Christ is glorified. God is satisfied because he can forgive and still be righteous. That is, God can be both loving and merciful and still be the righteous judge who always treats sin as sin rightfully deserves. And God is glorified because this shows the supremacy of God in all things. Our salvation has absolutely nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with God. I'm not saved by something I've done. I'm saved because of something God has done. All glory goes to him. Nothing goes to me. And that means that all of us who trust in Christ have also become united with Christ. You know, if we went back to our text, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we would see that if anyone is in Christ, you know those words, in Christ, is something I'm going to discuss later in this series on knowing your salvation. Well, those words, in Christ, they're actually repeated 73 times in our New Testament. There is now between us who believe and Christ a union. We and Christ now share a common life. Think of it this way. I have many times heard local sports fans say of their team, we won last night. What do they mean by we? But that makes an important illustration. All that is Christ's now belongs to me, with, of course, the exception of his deity. His reward, that's my reward. Even when I suffer in this life, I'm reminded of his suffering. When I'm tempted, I think of his temptation. My life is hid in his life. I live through him. Matter so vital. Notice how the great exchange happens. Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Did you notice the term counted? Yeah, you guessed it. That's our word imputed, reckoned credited, counted. God imputes your sin onto Christ and Christ's righteousness onto you, and he does it through faith. Your faith is credited to your account as Christ's righteousness. Now, some people stumble here because they don't understand faith. So let me give you the best illustration I can. The story is told of a man who is crossing a desert on foot, 
and he ran into trouble, and he was dying of thirst when he spotted a pump near an abandoned shack. He went to it and began to pump up and down on it, but the handle moved easily up and down, no water. Just as he was getting desperate, he noticed a jug full of water near the pump with a note attached. And the note said, there's just enough water in this jug to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. This well has never gone dry, even in the worst of times. Pour the water in the top of the pump and pump the handle quickly, and you'll get all the water you need. And after you've had a drink, refill the water for the next man who comes along. Now, what would the man dying of thirst do? If he drinks the water from the jar, there won't be enough to get across the desert but he will stave death off for a short time. But if he puts the water in the pump and it doesn't work, he's going to die immediately. What now stands before him, the decision he must make, is a test of his faith or a picture of his unbelief. He stands before the jug for some time trying to decide. Believe me, that's your question. God requires of you to take all your resources, your efforts, the things you're proud of, your background, how you were raised, your religious beliefs, your confidence in your own ability, or your hope that you'll do the best that you can, and that should be good enough, and to pour all of that out onto Christ and his work on the cross, that you trust only in his cross and nothing else. Listen, you must entrust yourself only, exclusively, to Christ, his blood and righteousness. Count Zinzendorf, a great German Christian, once wrote, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Thanks so much, John. A, a wonderful message. But let me ask you this. You know, I think many of us would shout loudly, even sing, that we're saved by the blood of Jesus. But not many talk about being saved by the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, you know, Ben, that's, that's so true. I think we've forgotten something very important, that Jesus Christ both lived and died for me. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, the way in which we understand uh, the, the gospel is that, you know, nothing counts except when we come to the cross. Well, no, the entire life of Jesus counts because his righteous life you know, as I've already said, is imputed to us. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. I will be judged upon Jesus' life. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. And, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Making the Most of Your Salvation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other. An opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's royal palace, worship at the garden tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. 
Registration is limited, so call back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash Israel Experience.